recessions happen and labor markets cool. We've been through that cycle many times before. But when the economy recovers, the labor shortage, both in terms of numbers and skills, always returns. This means that talent acquisition, finding the right worker for the job and the team, is a hardy perennial, a problem that is likely to be with us far into the future as an aging workforce sees more exits than entrants. Employers and workers need to get smart about how they search for workers and skills that will deliver the most value for customers, businesses, and employees. In his new book, Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives, and Winners Around the World, economist Tyler Cowen wanted to understand the talent challenge better. The key insight of his work is that bosses need to get better at interviewing, adopting strategies and tactics that drag job candidates away from their talking points that tend to conceal both weaknesses and strengths. Essentially, talent is a primer on how to knock job seekers off balance for their own good so that they and the companies considering them can ensure the best possible match between talent and task. Tyler joins us today to unpack key lessons from the book, his personal experiences in hiring, and to talk about becoming Tyler Cowan. Tyler Cowan, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Happy to be here. Well, it's a delight. Um, uh, The book is outstanding, uh, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, uh, learning more and uh, giving some of the folks in our audience who haven't encountered you elsewhere uh, a chance to hear about uh, this wonderful book on talent. So I'd like to start out these conversations um, getting guests to talk a little bit about themselves and their own vocational journeys and um, particularly interested in kind of early influences, the path that people developed from an early age that they now, now looking back can see sort of the progression um, into their into their chosen field. So when and how uh, did it occur to you that um, economics um, was a profession that you could aspire to? I started with economics quite early. So when I was 10, I was very avidly involved in playing chess. I was a kind of chess prodigy. But at some point, I realized that would, would just be a terrible life and terrible job. So starting at the age of 13, I I was reading economics and also philosophy. I was lucky enough that my father brought me to a fee seminar, which at the time was quite good. And by the time I was 14, I was reading everything and pretty much convinced I would be an economics professor. Philosophy didn't seem practical enough, and it never seemed to make that much progress. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, I'm curious, what was the what were the er, the er texts for you in terms of economics? Uh, the very first book was one called The Incredible Bread Machine, which at the time was quite well known. Uh, Henry Hazlitt, Economics <clears throat> in One Lesson, but Hayek, Friedman, Rothbard, Mises, uh, nothing that would surprise you. Uh, mm-hmm. I read some Ayn Rand, uh, which I liked uh, as sort of so the social business take. I never really liked the abstract philosophy of Ayn Rand. Uh, those were all major early influences. How about Adam Smith? I think I was 14 or 15 when I read Wealth of Nations. And I, I loved it, but in some sense it was familiar to me. So I read Use of Knowledge and Society by Hayek. 
and then Adam Smith on the grain trade, and it all fit together. But a lot of reading Adam Smith, even if you're 15 and obsessed with economics, a lot of it's kind of boring. The digression yeah. on silver, <laughs> my eyes would roll, yeah. Yeah. and so on. But yes, Adam Smith. And, and, and did you spend any time with the theory of moral sentiments? Only much later. And I've never fully caught into that book. I also watched Firing Line, mm. maybe starting age 13, 14, which is not economics, but it's, it's related to all the rest of what we're talking about. And I quite liked Firing Line. Uh, thus, I was excited when I got to do my own podcast, in part, you know, inspired by watching Buckley. Well, I, I want to push you back, push back, not push back. I want to push back to the question of uh, theory of moral sentiments and why you never caught into it. I think Smith was not quite a fully mature thinker. It's not that well organized a book. It is full of fascinating insights. Uh, but I think Wealth of Nations is just much better thought out. And if all we knew of Smith was TMS, we would still be debating exactly what he meant. And I do yeah. view that as a weakness of the book. Yeah. So there are some books you can debate what the author meant because it's so deep and rich. And TMS is partly that, but it's also partly just not entirely clear. So I certainly like the book, uh, but I prefer Wealth of Nations. <clears throat> uh, no, I, I was interested because you talked about in Rand, you... Um, you like the social business side of things. And i that's the way I think of TMS is sort of talking about the, um, the a human sociability as being the root of markets. Um, so uh, I was it, it just interesting that you made both of those comments. I wish there were more about markets in TMS. So uh, I read Smith in TMS as saying, well, people do put way too much stress on the local sympathy information they have, but actually that's still good enough for society to work. And I, I mostly agree with that. I think it's a profound message. Uh, I just wish it were much clearer in the text. Yeah. And of course, yeah. that's my subjective reading. Not everyone reads the book that way. That's interesting. I, I spent a week uh, last week out in Holland, Michigan um, with the Liberty Fund crowd uh, on all the life, the life and works of Adam Smith. Anyway, it was very interesting to sort of, but I, I think you're right about it. And I, the reason I bring that up is I think you're right about the lack of clarity in the book and how it lends itself to so many different interpretations, uh, because I think there were as many interpretations as there were people around the table. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, very good. And aside from your dad, who, who, who's been, who was your guide or your Sherpa into economics? When I, I think I was 14, but I met a, a man named Walter Grinder, who uh, at the time was head of Center for Libertarian Studies and later president of Institute for Humane Studies. And I met him semi-accidentally. He somehow knew my, my dad a bit. I, I don't really remember the details if I ever knew. And Walter, who's still alive, by the way, was a guy who was determined he was going to read every book there ever was. And I thought this was so admirable. And I thought, well, this would be a model for me. You know, I'll never read every book there ever was. But the notion that someone could aspire to that was an enormously powerful idea for me. Because and that was Walter. And that was a powerful idea for you because. Well, once I, it just sounded fantastic to try to yeah. read as many books as possible yeah. and absorb all the information, totally impractical. But when you're 14, that's part of the charm. 
And yeah. I do, in fact, read a great deal. So yeah. I've, I've stuck on that track ever since. Yeah, yeah terrific. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, so you're a busy man. Uh, you have a very important uh, blog and you write uh, extensively and you are an important public intellectual. Uh, why, of all the projects that you could have undertaken uh, with the limited time that you have, did you decide on this project? You mean the talent project? Yes, the talent project. Well, I think the key lies in your use of the word projects, plural. So I've been involved in many projects in my life, past, present, and future to come. And in every single case, I found the binding constraint is talent, not money. Mm. So it seemed to me people should focus more on talent as an actual problem to be solved and write about it, study it, talk about it, do things practically to try to resolve talent as a binding constraint. And I just have the view, if you think something is important, like a lot of time you ought to do it. There's a tendency to tell the other people to yeah. do it. Okay, that's important too. But a lot of the time you ought to try to do it yourself, both as a practitioner uh, and as a communicator. So I wrote this book with Daniel Gross, who's a venture capitalist, uh, who's a remarkable talent at finding talent. Mm. He lives in the Bay Area. And it's also an offshoot of my own work with Emergent Ventures, which is a philanthropic project designed to find and encourage talent. That's terrific. Okay. So give us the definition. What is talent? Talent, as we cover it in the book, is people who have the potential to have creative ideas that will make a difference or somehow be transformative. It's not the only kind of talent, right? But it's the kind of talent we focus on. And what are the common features of people with talent? Uh, I think the word common features is pointing somewhat in the wrong direction. So talent is quite diverse. There's not a simple formula, but much like art or music appreciation, you can teach yourself to be better at it. You wouldn't quite say like, what are the common features of all the really good paintings? Oh, they all have the color red or they're all you know square, but I think it's a more complex enterprise than that and understanding the roles of intelligence and personality and how people engage in conversations is how you get to this deeper understanding. I, I was really intrigued by a line uh, in the book about not about, well, you, I think you talked about it as lookism, uh, that we tend to judge uh, kind of on outward appearances um, at too much. Um, what, what's your, um, I, I'll just tell you what my bias is. I'm always looking for something kind of unusual in the person that I'm interviewing. Same here. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. If I'm speaking to someone who shows some potential, but there's some combination of inarticulate or not what you would call traditionally good looking or attractive, uh, that tends to pique my interest. I would readily accept the claim that on average, articulate people are, say, more successful or maybe have more talent. But those are exactly the kind of people who are already doing well or are already well-placed. And if they're talking to you looking for an opportunity, you should worry a bit about adverse selection. Like maybe there's something wrong with them that can't be seen. And that's why they're talking with you. So I feel really good about a hire or, you know, a, a scholarship or award grant when I know what's wrong with the person. So for me, negative information is very often a kind of positive. Mm. Yeah, of course, you'd prefer the person to be perfect, but you're never going to get that. 
and you want some account of why they're a good match for you. So you also write um, that there's a significant subclass of potential workers uh, uh, that their talents are invisible or at least significantly harder to spot. Um, how does that happen? Why, do you, why is that the case? Why, why are we not good at, at looking past the exterior into the talent? Here is one example. Uh, on average, when men interview women, men tend to put too much weight on the personality characteristics of the woman and too little weight on the intelligence upside of the woman. Mm. That's the result in the research literature, but it's also broadly confirmed by my intuition and experience. Uh, there may be reasons rooted in biology why that's the case. Some of it is a kind of persistent social prejudice. But I think men are not always that good at understanding just how smart the very smartest women can be. So that's only one example. You ask, you know, the we, what are the mistakes we make? It depends who the we are, uh, but that would just be one illustration. When you're yeah. interviewing people across other cultures, it can be much harder to figure out how well you click with them because it's different, right? I, yeah, I certainly think that's true. And uh, it leads me to my next question, which is, I, I don't know how much of this is reflected in the intercultural or the, the bias question, but I do know, or my intuition, I should say, is you know, that interviewing is a very stressful activity. Uh, it is, there's usually something on the line on both sides, but especially on the part of the job seeker. Um, you know, they, they, they're, they're trying to get somewhere, they're trying to get something and it feels like the stakes are high. And so they come in um, to an interview pretty stressed. Um, uh, and stress, um, you know, slows us down cognitively it just it makes it harder to think clearly and and respond um so i wanted to get your kind of response to that idea and then your your thoughts on for people who are who are doing the interviewing what do they need to do to uh, if not put people at ease at least allow them to relax enough so that you're getting a good picture of who they are we now return to smith's tms because Smith stresses the idea of trust, and the best way to earn trust is to actually be trustworthy. So that's the number one thing you can do. I don't think you will fool people by pretending to be trustworthy when you're not. Uh, but to actually be trustworthy will relax people, but then to engage them conversationally. And I like to get them talking about whatever it is that they're excited about. It could be anything. So the substance of the job, of course, you want to talk about. And then anything else where they can shine and you know have a great command of detail enthusiasm talk about what they've done in some area you want to sample how they process information not how they prepare for a job interview that's one way to put it <laughs> i want to get your opinion on this question because i use it all the time uh, when i'm interviewing um, job applicants which is uh we used to have this thing called a newspaper that you opened up i was you know uh, i still buy them yeah yeah and and you and you leafed through them right you're leafing through and you're you're scanning for information uh and for me anyway there's always a kind of article that i stop to read 
that I, not because I need to, that it holds some advantage for me to know that, but just because it's intrinsically interesting. So I asked that, you know, what is that for you? What's the thing that, you know, that you will read regardless of other considerations than your interest? Um, so what do you think of that kind of question as a way of opening people up? It's excellent because it gets them talking about what they're excited about or what you might expect them to know. And almost certainly they are not prepared for that question. So you're not getting something canned, which is not really getting much information at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, I, I do think of it as a way of kind of, uh, in a nice way, kind of knocking people off balance for their own good, um, you know, so that they are, that you're trying to force some sort of fresh expression of who they are um, so that you're not, you're not getting the polish, you're not getting the canned answer. Um, so, uh, asked you about the interview environment uh, and, you know, in terms of, of de-stressing people. You also talk in your book about um, like varying the environment in which you interview people. Can you go through that? That's not always possible, but when you can, if you can go for a walk, go out for a coffee, go to the cafeteria, just creating new situations that again, the person is not prepared for, you see how they handle problems. So let's say, uh, you know, the waitress spills something on their shirt or the line is too long at the cafeteria. How do they respond? Do they complain? Do they just wait in line? Do they ask you? You just get a lot of sources of information uh, that are fresh. So uh, tell, tell me about some of your experiences interviewing that help illustrate this. Sometimes I like to get people talking about fictional depictions of something. So I'll just ask, you know, what is it you're interested in? If it's Star Wars, I've asked the question, who in Star Wars is the best judge of talent? <laughs> is it Yoda? Is it, is it Obi-Wan? Is it Darth Vader for that matter? And I don't care if their answer agrees with mine. I actually think it's Darth Vader perhaps, but uh, it's again, their command of detail and level of enthusiasm and how they think about social relations. If you talk to them about Shakespeare or if they've seen Hamilton or whatever it is, it can be anything. Uh, again, don't look for agreement. Look for, are they thinking carefully about like how teams fit together, what talent means. And again, it depends on the job. If you're hiring a cashier at Starbucks, this is a waste of your time. But if you are, for instance, AEI, where people work together a lot, it can be quite important. Yeah, and that, that actually brings me to another question I have while I was reading. I was thinking, in terms of, you, you talk a lot in there uh, about entrepreneurs, uh, major figures who are you know, creative geniuses uh, and, you know, uh, Elon Musk interviewing the first 3000 people who worked for him because he wanted to know, you know, if they were the right fit for the, for, uh, his enterprise. And one of the things that a lot of creative geniuses have in common is that they are actually very difficult to work with, or they can be very difficult to work with. Um, they're grouchy, they're uh, impatient, they're, you know, often, not always, but these are some of the characteristics. So how do you, how do you balance a team then 
to, I mean, you can't, if you had only that personality, you'd be in trouble. Um, so what do you need to buffer personalities, the, these, these creative people that, that you're saying we ought to value more? How do you buffer them to make sure that the whole, everybody is successful? If the person is truly difficult, I would say start by having them do piecework at a distance, see how it goes, try to incorporate them into teams. But to go a, a little broader, you might ask the interesting question, what are the two hardest questions in talent evaluation? And I'll tell you what I think the two hardest are. Uh, one is when you meet people who might be creative geniuses, are they the next Allen Iverson or are they just outright destructive? Mm. I think that's A, difficult to tell, and B, whether or not you can tell it is not well correlated with being a good judge of talent. And the second most difficult question is, when you're evaluating quite young people who really don't have a track record yet, how can you tell who will be durable and persistent? Mm -hmm. My wish list of the two things I wish I had more data on, a better understanding on, are exactly those two questions. I don't think I'm so great at them. I, I'm not sure anyone is. At identifying uh, persistence, you said, or? Well, persistence in the young. Once someone has a yeah. track record, it's actually yeah, yeah. one of the easiest things to identify. Right. You just look at paper. There are exceptions, women who leave the workforce, they have children, they don't yet have a real track record. Uh, again, you just need a bit more time, but it's not in principle difficult. But the, the brilliant 17-year-old, will he or she stick with it? That's very tough. And then, and you see sports teams make this mistake in very visible ways. There's a lot of top stars who are total washouts, you know, like Kyrie Irving has become one because they just don't have the discipline. And the ones who are super successful and the ones who are washouts, they seem really very close in terms of personality type. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I, one of the arguments for uh, using the bachelor's degree as a credential uh in the in the workforce is that that actually is a signal of persistence that you started a four-year degree program and you finished a four-year degree program uh and th that suggests or it uh it's reasonable to say that that suggests um that you're going to stick with stuff that you're going to have that persistence what do you make of that on average, that's a good signal. But keep in mind, that signal is fully priced into the market. Like everyone knows that, right? That a college degree has some value. So if your only algorithm is to hire people with college degrees, you pay the full value for that conscientiousness. You don't really get anywhere. Mm. So you're not going to win at spotting talent. It's interesting. Recently, the state of Maryland has decided that for many of the state government jobs, you don't need a college degree anymore. You need some other evidence that you will do well. Uh, we'll see how this goes. I think it will be relatively successful. But the notion that you need to require a college degree for someone manning a toll booth, I mean, that's just insane. And it's going to discriminate against minorities, some number of women, maybe you had children early. Uh, it's also limiting opportunity in our society. Yeah. Um, well, that I, I, I'd like you to expand on one little piece of your answer. Talk about the importance of talent identification uh, from the standpoint of competitiveness um, in, uh, among, between businesses. Well, I think you have to ask for any institution, what's the source of its competitiveness? 
Now, there are some institutions, the key factor might just be they hold some amazing intellectual property and all they need to do is license it. And they just need people who will show up and turn the lights on and off, write contracts, you know, collect the money and so on. And institutions like that don't need to work very hard at talent because it's their comparative advantage is somewhere else. And they can just pay the market price for super obvious signals of talent, like college degrees from good places. But if you look at, you know, say think tanks or universities or people doing startups or people trying to discover new products, winning Nobel prizes there, I mean, talent really is the place you have to win, right? And then you can't just follow simple, well-known, somewhat hackneyed rules. It's interesting. I was uh, I've spent been spending a fair amount of time out in Silicon Valley talking with um, people who are doing startups, or you know they are involved in, in trying to get startups going. Um, and a, one of them contended to me that there there were anti-competitive practices around talent in um, in Silicon Valley that there was a kind of vacuuming effect by the big firms to draw in all of the most talented, the best credentialed people um, as a way of uh, limiting the startup access to that talent. Have you ever run into that argument in your work? And they, and they go on, I should say, they go on to say, a lot of those people end up not being fully utilized. They actually just, they get plopped down in a cubicle and maybe they've got one big project and then they sit um, after that project is done. Um, but have you run into that argument anywhere? I hear this argument all the time, but if you take even the tech company with the largest employment level, I'm not even sure offhand which that would be, but they're only hiring a quite small percentage of the overall contenders to do startups. That is not gonna work as a business strategy do I think the major tech companies have overhired and overpaid? Absolutely. And a lot of them are trying to talk and walk their way back out of this. But I don't think conceptualizing it as a conspiracy is really correct. If so, it's a very stupid conspiracy. Like what if I said, oh, I, I want to hire all the economists so no one else can come along and be a great economist who doesn't work for me. It's just not going to work, right? You could call it a conspiracy all you want. It's not going to work. Yeah, I mean, it's a very certainly a very expensive conspiracy and uh, a drag on productivity in the sector if it's happening. Um, and I, I haven't looked to see if there's evidence of low productivity around high tech workers. Um, you know, the the sort of very top of that of that group, folks coming out of Stanford and MIT and uh, Berkeley and. Caltech, um, but I, I am curious about it as to whether that is actually a business strategy. And I, I'm not a big conspiracy believer myself at all, um, but I, I, I did wonder, I mean, he was, this guy was pretty persuaded that one of the reasons he couldn't get the kind of talent he needed was um, that the big companies were buying everybody up. Well, there's a slightly different version of his argument, which makes more sense which is simply that a software engineer in Facebook or Google, at least prior to the crash, was pretty valuable. Maybe those people start at three or 400K because they're valuable. And if they're starting at that level plus options or bonus and you're trying to hire them, that's hard. But I would just say that's the market working. And furthermore, if you're doing a startup, a lot of people doing startups tell me this. They say, 
well, those marginal software engineers at the top companies, they might be very talented, but they're not actually the people who are great at doing startups. They're too risk averse. Mm. Actually, the fact that we can afford them is a kind of blessing in disguise. And we've got to scratch and scrape and find weirder people who don't quite have the same opportunities. And they're ultimately better for the risks and tension and stress involved in a startup. So that account to me makes far more sense than so conspiracy. How would, you, how would you go about measuring for uh, risk appetite in an interview? When there's a track record, put the track record above the interview almost 100% of the time. Again, with young people, uh, there may not be that track record. Uh, but even risk tolerant young people typically have done something in their teens that will reveal their true type and just get them talking about something and see what comes out. That, yeah. That's my advice. Yeah. And see how that's... nice they are to you. If they're super polite, don't hold that against them, but you should, you know, somewhat downgrade your estimate of their risk tolerance. Hmm. There's the famous story, it's even in the movie when Mark Zuckerberg, you know, showed up. He was invited to present to Sequoia Capital and he showed up in his pajamas and he told them not to fund him. Well, that's not too risk averse uh, a CEO, right? Right, right. It doesn't have to be that extreme, but differences appear early on. And at the time, Mark was probably 18 or something. So do you think there's something about our system, our economic system that tends to homogenize personality that in essence, is cultivating risk aversion. I think we are living in an era. I wouldn't blame our economic system per se, but 2022, I think we have more and more sorting into peer groups. So the people who are conformist are much more conformist than they used to be. The people who are nonconformist actually are more nonconformist and more risk seeking. So we're kind of splitting the distribution because these people find kindred spirits typically using the internet. So there's more opportunity, but also bigger problems. And you can read the data either way you want, but I think both trends are in there. So let's get personal about it for a second. What's the biggest risk you ever took? The biggest risk I ever took, it depends what age you look at, but when I was 17, I decided that instead of going to an Ivy League school, I would go to Rutgers Newark and then George Mason University because I wanted to pursue a particular kind of economics. And at the time that seemed absolutely crazy. Now that's hard to compare to a risk you take, you know, much later in your career, but early risks, I guess, are the biggest ones. So I'll say that. Yeah. Place your bet. You're placing a bet on your life. You know, this is, this is what uh, you're so interested in. You can't not do it. Um, that's, that's really interesting. I would say for myself, it was when I got on a, airplane with a one-way airplane ticket and came to Washington, D.C. with no money to just try that. I was doing an internship and I just, I, I wanted to do it and I didn't know why I wanted to do it necessarily and I didn't have the resources to do it. But um, yeah, that was that. And that was... were you then? Uh, I was, I was just graduated from college. I was 22. And what was the first job you got after you did that? Um, my first paying job, that one didn't pay, it was volunteer, but the first paying job was as a, um, as a uh, administrative assistant for a trade association. I was just answering phones and, and doing the typing and, you know, uh, all of these things that, that didn't last long, you know, within about eight months, I was back on the Hill 
uh, you know, working for a member of Congress. But yeah, so that was another risk is like, I can't find the job that I want, but I know this is the place I want it. So I got to figure out how to stay here. When I was 41, I decided I would devote most of my energies to blogging at a time when that was not obviously a sensible thing to do. Now, I had tenure then. In that sense, it's not a big risk. Right. Uh, but it's a significant risk with one's career. Yeah. Is it important to keep taking risks? Up until a certain age, I still feel I'm within the margins where I should be taking risks. Uh, but if you're 78 years old, <laughs> I suspect most people then should not be taking big risks, no matter how good at risk taking they may be. Yeah. Because they're really good at other things too, if the risks have been paying off. Yeah. But I think up through your late 60s, successful risk takers should not be giving up on taking risk. That's interesting. Very good. Okay. Talk about um, the relationship or lack of relationship between intelligence and talent. I think most smart people overvalue the import of intelligence. I wouldn't say the world as a whole does. It certainly does not in our political leaders. But smart people tend to think so much is about smarts. But you can see in the data and when you talk to top people doing talent evaluation, that once people are smart enough to be doing the job at all, there's very little correlation between IQ and career success. And that's a lesson we need to internalize. I'm not saying you can hire someone without a high school degree to do differential equations. That's not going to work. But if you look at people, you know, in tech or finance or for that matter, academia, smarts and success, very loosely correlated. So, so one thing that we spend a lot of time thinking about on, on my team um, is this domain of non-cognitive skills. Um, you know, so you've got cognitive skills like math and, you know, reading and so on, but then you've got this whole domain of life that is about interpersonal exchange um, and that, you know, when you ask employers what they want, they'll give you a list of 10 things and eight of them have nothing to do with the particulars of the industry or the job. It's all about communication, and team management and collaboration, those kinds of things. How do you think about that in this uh, intelligence um, uh, uh, intelligence talent um, dichotomy. I just very strongly agree. Again, I would stress that holds only for people within a given intelligence class. Mm. You can't teach people to do things they're just intrinsically unsuited for. Uh, but stop trying to figure out if you're, say, you, a think tank, you're interviewing five people, like most of the five, probably all of the five, they're going to be pretty smart. They're going to be smart enough to do the job. You should be looking at the non-cognitive factors. And I think a lot of people know that, but they find it very hard to bring themselves to act that way because they think of themselves as smart and they feel they're successful. They want to hire people who are like they are. So they look for smart and articulate too much. So, uh, you know, one of the reasons, let's talk a little bit more about credentials, but one of the reasons, uh, I'm sure you've got strong views on this, so that's why I'm asking. Um, uh, one of the reasons that we rely on credentials, degrees, certificates, um, as you know, as important in staffing decisions is that they're 
quote unquote objective, their objective measures. And the more you move in an interviewing process, the more you move away from objective factors into subjective factors, you actually are taking on risk, not so much in the, the person you might end up hiring, but in legal risk, um, you know, that degrees are neutral. Uh, and these other things are not, and they bring in more bias um, into the hiring process. What, what are your, what's your thinking on how law and regulation uh, in, uh, interacts with uh, finding and hiring talent? Well, first, I think workplace litigation is far too easy to initiate, and I would change that system insofar as I could, but just you know, living within it, taking it as a given. At the margin, you can take more or less risk. And I see large numbers of institutions basically taking too little risk, that there's a protection of perks and there's a, a fetish, you know, we fetishize routine. And I would just say credentials have become ever broader. Someone who spends a lot of their life reading smart things on the internet, to me, that's a credential. It may be a better credential than, you know, finishing Brown University. We're not quite willing to count it as one. At the margin, do I think uh, research centers, think tanks, universities can hire more people like that without being sued into oblivion? I do. I absolutely do. Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, and I can hear the legal departments and corporations all over America, you know, uh, standing up in alarm and hearing something like that, you know, because they're the We're not here to maximize their well-being, right? That's important. <laughs> yeah. Their objective function is not ours. Right. Now their objection, their objective function ought to be to protect the corporation when it's necessary and not uh, not to micromanage it so that they don't have to do any work. Um, that's, uh, I, I think that's the risk they're managing is actually their own workloads. Um, As you know, in the yeah. realm of ideas where you and I both live and work, success is driven by a power law. It's not about how good your median person is, but the top 10, 15% who have real impact, how much impact do they have? And to truly internalize that when evaluating talent, a lot of people are just psychologically not quite able to do it. They, they don't like the notion that they're making mistakes and they can't get around that. Yeah, no, and I, I, I feel that in myself too. I mean, it's just like, uh, worst days are the ones where you realize you've really bungled something and, you know, you may have gotten 99 things right and one wrong. Uh, and uh, it can, at least for me, it's a, it's a challenge. I think it is for others as well. Let me, um, let me shift here to uh, the, the cutting edge of talent identification, which is the use of artificial intelligence um, for sorting and determining, um, you know, who's a who's a viable candidate, who's not a viable candidate. Uh, I had a call yesterday with uh, someone who's currently commissioner on the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission who's thinking about this a lot. Uh, and uh, I think people are starting to get super nervous about the um, 
the proliferation of this technology in HR systems, um, either from a legal liability standpoint or that these systems may end up uh, being more biased than human alternatives. Have you thought about this much? What do you? What Quite do you a bit. Yeah. I don't think the AI systems work yet. That's one reason why Daniel and I don't really write about them in the book. I wouldn't be shocked if they started working fairly soon, given all the other progress. Uh, but, but here's two points I would make. First, if they do work, what they're like will change so quickly. You know, at any point in time, it will be hard to give good advice. But the second is these AI systems, whether it's Google or, you know, the drawing or the GPT-3, they end up being universally accessible a lot quicker than people are expecting. So whatever we get from AI, everyone will have it. And for you to have a talent hiring edge, it will still depend on you. Mm. So at the margin, it will not render irrelevant other insights. So it's not yeah. going to do away with, you know, talent as an act of judgment. Yeah, that's uh, that's an extremely important point, I think, um, and it and it goes to it's a it's actually kind of a model for the right way to use AI generally, which is as a supplement to human talent rather than a replacement for it. Um, so I think that I think that's right. I mean, I on the bias side, um, I, I think it's arguable. I don't know what you think about this, but I think it's arguable about whether it puts more bias in or takes bias more bias out of the process. Um, in, other, in other domains, we've seen how it can be used to reduce bias. Um, but yeah, what do you think about that? I think for lending, lending is an area where there is AI software that plausibly is working. It's not exactly hiring or talent search, but obviously it's related. Uh, my sense is from a distance, it often puts more bias in. Mm. Uh, I don't know what to do about that. Our regulatory state is not good at regulating algorithms or software, or for that matter, crypto. Uh, I just hope at a personal level, I can teach people how to see past credentials and undo some of the actual biases so more women, more minorities, more people from other countries get hired. The yeah. net effect of what I'm proposing would have all of those effects. And, uh, and you, write, you write very compellingly on uh, this diversity question. Why is diversity important from your standpoint? Well, I would start with intellectual diversity as the most important kind of diversity. Racial or gender diversity may or may not get you there, but sometimes they do. Having people around from different countries uh, very often gets you there. Not always, not if you all you know, went to Oxford together, uh, but you get different perspectives, but you want a kind of diversity where people can still work together because cooperation is a super important value. I think that's entirely possible. You see it in Silicon Valley and it can be done. Yeah. And I think uh, in our you know, lines of work, we will see more and more people from other nations having significant roles in writing about American policy. One of the most successful scholars at Mercatus is Veronique de Rougy, who is from France and she sees the world differently because she's from France and that's an advantage or Shruti Rajagopalan, who works with me on Emergent Ventures, is from India, born in India, grew up in India, sees the world differently, big advantage. And we need to be ahead of that. They're both women, they're both foreigners. Shruti is non-white. Uh, I don't care what the AI is telling you. Like, that's a thing. If you're ahead of the trend, you are going to do very well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that Veronique is a longtime friend. And 
I don't know if it's her her Frenchness or her just uh, just the way that she always cuts through the cant of any <laughs> of any conversation and just says what she's thinking. Um, she's which, not a Parisian. It's very important. She's yeah. like what half from uh, Corsica, half from Brittany, I think. Yeah, or Normandy, I think. Is where yeah, she, so she's yeah. diverse in this way, not just different country, not just woman, but in some kind of intellectual class sense, she didn't just go to the, like the science academy. She's truly diverse yeah. along a, a multiplicity of dimensions. I, this is such an encouraging conversation to me because that is something that I've always intuited that, or not always, but I've come to intuit in in staffing decisions is like looking to the periphery rather than to the center, uh, finding the people who actually have something unusual uh, or come from an unusual place. They're just going to bring a, a kind of perspective and insight into the work that I, I can't get just by you know uh, hiring out of elite institutions. Strongly agree. And those elite institutions, I, I suspect you would agree, they have become much more conformist than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that uh, kids now uh, in college are, I think there's some reality to this that, you know, it is risky to say, it's risky to, to speak what is in your mind uh, unedited, uh, and it can follow you your entire life. Um, if you you know happen to say the wrong thing or tweet the wrong thing, um, so yeah, no, I think that's right, and I think that those pressures are most intense uh, within elite institutions. I think smart people who read on the internet are still underrated. Teenagers mm. are still underrated. Uh, people migrating from South Asia are still underrated. Children of immigrants who live in Ontario to me are massively underrated all kinds of places we can look for, for lots and lots of talent where you hear about it, but I think we're very far from having exhausted it. Yeah, and I, I don't even have to guess at your uh, your views on like high skill immigration or anything like that. I mean, just like the gates ought to be open, right? We ought to be bringing everybody in that we can. Uh, I agree, but I would go further. The phrase high skilled makes me nervous. I'm hmm. all for high skilled, but I don't quite trust the government to always decide uh, who is high skilled. Yeah. And I want a diversity of methods that people can get in. So we're sampling a few different ways. Some of them credentials, absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. the Swedish engineer wants to come, welcome. But I don't want it only to be that either. And I get a little worried. People say high skilled is kind of a cheap way of yeah. addressing anxiety about immigration. But I want to take more chances. Yeah, no, I'm 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 definitely with you on that. I mean, I I I'm not exactly an open border person because I think it's important that we know who's in the country. Um, but uh, I think we need people. Uh, we need as many people as we can get um, because they they are the source of all value. Um, and uh, anyway, so that's that on that. Let, let me ask you what's next for you. What's What are you working on? What can we uh, look forward to from the mind of Tyler Cowan? My project, Emergent Ventures, takes up quite a bit of my time. It is a philanthropic fund run through Mercatus Center and George Mason University that tries to find talented people, often young people, give them money, encourage them, connect them to networks, and help their careers. 
So uh, it's set up with super low overhead costs, 2% overhead, and there's no committee. There's one layer of no. The one layer of no is myself. So it's an attempt to get support into the hands of people who can't just approach the major foundations. And uh, I've been working hard on that for four years, and I am very much planning on continuing and extending that. And Shruti, who works with me, she does Emergent Ventures India. I think India is a fantastic place for talent. Next week, I'm going to India for two and a half weeks, and I will attend a meetup of all of our India winners. And I'm super excited about that too. So this mix of writing, but also doing, I'm a big fan of. I think my friend Jennifer Zambone is going with you. Correct. Yes, Dan um, Rothschild, whom you probably know, will be there. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, so we need to have you back on uh, after you get home from India, so you can tell us, you know, what you saw, what you're learning out of the out of Emergent Ventures. If I, frankly, I'd just like to know more about it. Period. So. We'll reserve that for another conversation, but um, where can people follow you if they want to follow, follow the work of Tyler Cowan? If you Google my name, there's only one Tyler Cowan, at Tyler Cowan on Twitter, my blog, Marginal Revolution, my podcast, Conversations with Tyler, my online economics education site, mru.org. And you can also just email me. My email's online. Google Tyler Cowan email. There you go. I will respond. <laughs> Excellent. Tyler, thanks so much for taking out uh, all this time to be with us today. A fantastic book on talent. Please go out and buy it uh, and read it, especially if you, well, everybody should read it, but especially if you're in hiring uh, and um, talent acquisition. Great book. Thank you for the kind words. Look forward to next time. Yep. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.